Welcome to Securing America with me, Frank Afney, the program that's a kind of owner's manual for protecting the country we love against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to the glory of God and his kingdom. I am very pleased to be able to introduce once again to this audience a man who I think has come to earn the reputation of being the Aaron Brockovich of Washington corruption. His name is Brian Costello. He has been, among other things, a successful tech entrepreneur, now working to um, engineer a startup in the artificial intelligence space. But he's making a huge contribution to, I believe, our national security by raising the alarm about what people in the tech space venture capitalists specifically, but also others in uh, Wall Street and the financial sector, are doing to corrupt our body politics, our leaders, most especially, notably in Congress and the executive branch, and to the benefit, most especially, of our mortal enemy, the Chinese Communist Party. Brian Costello, it's great to have you back. Thank you for taking a few minutes to talk with us about um, the world as you see it and what you're trying to do about it. It's so appreciated. Yeah. Hey, Frank, uh, it's great to be back. And thank you for that wonderful introduction. Well, it's heartfelt and I think well-deserved. Let me ask you, if I could, as a kind of scene setter, to talk a little bit about a, well, it sounds like a true crime story, I think, that is kind of unfolding. And I'd like your take on what is known and what is to be determined, but it's highly suspicious. Angela Chow is a woman who is, well, rather remarkable for a number of reasons. Uh, she comes from a family that uh, was hugely successful uh, in uh, the shipping business, uh, including doing a lot of it with the Chinese Communist Party. She served on the board of the Bank of China. She has been involved in uh, other uh, realms, including uh, with the holding company for the China Shipbuilding Company, a state-owned enterprise, I believe, that is uh, building ships, of course, for commercial purposes, but also for the Chinese People's Liberation Army Navy. Also distinguished by her sister, Elaine Chow a woman who has served in a number of cabinet positions, is married to the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Tell us what happened to Angela Chow recently and what you make of it. Yeah, Frank, this is, you know, true crime mystery is, is right. What's, you know, very concerning right now is the lack of information that's actually being provided to the American people. So sometime over the weekend, we've I've heard the February 10th, I've heard February 12th, Evidently, there was a tragic accident, and um, one of the publications in China, Caxon, which is a state-owned entity, has published there was a car accident with a truck. Um, a, a prominent billionaire in the U.S. who's very connected down in Texas has said that there was an accident with uh, Miss Chow's Tesla backing into a pond. So we don't, we don't know what the true story is right now on this. What we do know is that Angela Chow, who, as you articulated, is Mitch McConnell's sister-in-law, uh, you know, the, the head of the Senate on the Republican side. Uh, her husband is Jim Breyer, who is, uh, you know, profound investor, uh, both here in the U.S. and China. Uh, he's on the board of Blackstone, who's a substantial China investor. He's also on the uh, was chairman of the board of IDG Ventures. Uh, who just went on the military blacklist for funding uh, companies associated with the Chinese People's Liberation Army. Um, and, and so there are a lot of tentacles to this, right? You've got uh, Elaine Chow and, you, uh, you know, her background, and, you know, she's done a lot in the philanthropic world, and anybody's passing is, is a tragedy, uh, uh, no matter what the circumstances. But her tentacles into the U.S. government, her tentacles into the, you know, billionaire oligarchy that, uh, you know, plays a role, you know, Pryor was on the board of Facebook at one point, he was on the board of Walmart, he was on the board of Baidu, right? Uh, and, and the circumstances surrounding her has is, is created a mystery. There's a lot of, lot of speculation about 
what happened right now. Uh, people don't even know which police body responded and where it was, other than rumors. That hasn't been even substantiated. So this was down in Texas, I believe, up in the hill country where they had a ranch, apparently. But, Brian, one of the data points, as I understand it, that may bear on what happened here, and this is speculation, uh, I'll freely acknowledge that, but uh, Jim Breyer, as I understand it, uh, made an appearance at Davos in January, in the course of which he made a statement that was uh, pretty stunning coming from a guy who had been doing as much business with China and the Chinese Communist Party specifically as had he. Uh, remind us what he said and how that might bear on all of this. Yeah, so I think this was January 18th in an interview with Bloomberg, who has its own tentacles into China. And, you know, Michael Bloomberg's distributing uh, terminals was asked if China was uninvestable. And of course, he didn't answer China was uninvestable, but then proceeded to, he said China, I mean, he never looks at China as uninvestable. But he proceeded to say he's not investing there and hasn't invested there in the last 18 months, which, as you know, the Chinese Communist Party watches this stuff. If you've made money in China, no matter where you are, you have to have your undying loyalty. So the fact that he said he hadn't invested in China in 18 months, that he's investing in AI and quantum computing in the U.S., um, uh, and that he's not sure kind of what happens in the precipice of a down market in China would not be very viewed very positively at all by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, now, and, one of the things couple, about this... And you, couple, and you couple that with IDG, his investment firm that's invested in some very prominent Chinese companies, including Xin uh, and others that are trying to go public, going on the military blacklist. You know, when these people are supposed to have Washington handled, you know, it, 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 you know, creates another layer of mystery around what there's very limited information being provided. Doing, in short, intentionally or unintentionally, reputational harm to the Chinese at a moment when uh, that would be particularly unwelcome. And, and I guess what I'm trying to get at, Brian, and you, you know this sector very well, um, the Chinese boast about having old friends in Wall Street and financial circles in this country and being able to count on them to, to deliver basically what the Chinese want on legislation or blocking legislation or otherwise influencing U.S. policy. These are so-called old friends of China. Uh, again, it's speculation, but is it conceivable that what fate befell Jim Breyer's wife had something to do with unhappiness about him. Listen, there's the, the lack of information and in how this came out is very concerning. I mean, normally in a circumstance like this, there would be a statement from the family about the tragedy, right? This got leaked, leaked out given the uh, child's prominence in the shipping world by shipping trade magazines were the first ones to report this. And as far as I know, the first entity that kind of offered its condolences uh, was the U.S. Coast Guard Academy where the uh, cows had uh, done a bunch of stuff. So the way this information kind of leaked out uh, and still there's no transparency raises significant alarms. I mean, Breyer's yet to kind of make, make a statement on this at all. Um, you know, there's the added complexity of it's all happening at a time while, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell and has always tried to distance his association from the cows in China while, you know, doing, doing China's dirty work on the uh, Capitol Hill and not, you know, get people not to focus on that. He's actually been made rich uh, through, through his, through his China association and uh, the cows family shipping company. So there's that layer, you know, the other layer that people are launching onto is, you know, it's, it's been reported that she was in a Tesla. This area in Austin is, uh, Tesla country and Elon Musk himself has put out some pretty controversial stuff related That's to true China too. lately. Hold the thought if you would. We have to take a short break. We'll be right back with Brian Costello. Stay tuned.
This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Yesterday, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Turner announced a, quote, serious national security threat, unquote, and called on President Biden to declassify all information about it. When I first heard this news, it seemed like an answer to prayer. After all, for months, our Committee on the Present Danger China has been warning that our borders are being invaded by large numbers of unaccompanied military-aged Chinese men. Customs and Border Patrol says 20,000 PRC nationals have entered since October 1st, and most of them appear to be People's Liberation Army personnel who surely constitute a serious national security threat. Evidently, Mr. Turner is instead preoccupied with an as yet undeployed Russian space-based nuclear weapon for destroying our satellites. That sounds like a problem, but what the nation needs to be addressing immediately is the present and potentially catastrophic danger posed by China's ongoing literal invasion of America. This is Frank Gaffney. Welcome back. Ryan Costello is in the house. Uh, The Aaron Brockovich of Washington Corruption, by which I mean a whistleblower, a person who raises the alarm about what is happening with respect to, in this case, our government, uh, and not least at the hands of our mortal enemy, the corrupting elite capture initiatives of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, You were making an important point, and I had to cut you off due to time, Brian, Talk a little bit about uh, Tesla country and what that might have to do with uh, Angela Kyle's. Yeah, a lot of the Tesla executives live in this area, um, uh, including Elon Musk, spends a lot of time down in this area. You know, he lately has done some things in terms of on X, formerly Twitter, put out a couple posts, one about TikTok being used across the Chinese border and two about it being time for Mitch McConnell to go that I can't believe are viewed very favorably with the Chinese Communist Party. So I think that creates an added layer of complexity to this story that, you know, there wasn't already already enough mystery surrounding it. Right. And further, perhaps explains why we are not hearing much from any of the principals in all of this, including Mitch McConnell. Brian Costello, uh, thank you for being with us. I'm anxious to get your thoughts on the kind of state of play, if you will, with respect to efforts to penetrate China's corrupting influence, uh, notably um, by the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, chaired by Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin. Um, There was a recent report that came out about uh, a company that you've been tracking very closely, and as I say, raising a warning about for some time, Sequoia Capital, and I believe four other venture capital firms that have been actively helping the Chinese Communist Party in various ways. Uh, walk us through the report, if you would, and your sort of takeaway. Yeah, I think what I've, what I've concluded, Frank, is that this China committee, I think we were all optimistic and, you know, that a direct committee was going to be focused on this issue. But what I've found is it to be performative at best and actually distracting in terms of a number of the other committees aren't actually focusing on China now because they believe the China committee is supposed to do everything when the China committee doesn't believe that. So let's the, the investment, the investigation into venture capital is the perfect example. Uh, and this is the per- perfect example of what the real problem is that no one's focusing on. The real problem is that China has bought Washington through Wall Street. And unless that is confronted, all these efforts are going to be useless. So what we saw here is Gallagher shaped and investigated four venture capital firms. Initially, Sequoia wasn't even in the group because they were one of Leader McCarthy's top donors, right? It wasn't until he resigned that they kind of got put in through the back door and then included in the report and, and big surprise there. So I would argue this investigation was fundamentally flawed from the beginning. It didn't even look at the right investment firms. One of the investment firms in it, Walden, I've been following this for years. I've never even heard of it. There are very specific firms that should have been looked at. Sequoia, IDG, who Jim Breyer, the, the speaker's brother-in-law was chairman of, should have been looked at. Hill House, which is an investment of the Yale crowd and John Kerry, should have been looked at uh, as, 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 as part of the investment group. Uh, So they didn't even look at the right firms. Second, when they laid out their conclusion was that there were three threats. The fourth threat they uh, avoided was 
that many of this, much of this China profit being derived is being funneled back into Washington politicians, which is why for years that they've actually been allowed to fund weapons in the Chinese Communist Party. And so to me, I look at it and say, the main conclusion, which was what Nunez's investigation that was killed by Turner McCarthy was originally about, which is that how is China buying Washington through the elite was never even looked at. It was avoided and not drawn as a threat. They didn't look at the right firms. Sequoia was initially avoided and then put into this thing back door. Um, you know, it, it, it tells me this thing's disingenuous at best. And it, it's very unfortunate that I say that. Let me ask you about a facet of this that is um, of surpassing importance, I believe, uh, and that is the extent to which um, these companies say, well, as long as it's not illegal, we're going to do it. We're going to do business with China, invest in it, help it get access to technology and what have you. What's your response to that? My response is also that's disingenuous because there are many things that are happening that are illegal, right? And they're hidden from the American people because politicians are put in place and administrations that won't confront them. So, for example, if you're if you're being dishonest and defrauding U.S. investors at one company and then allowed to raise a big new fund, but they never confront, they the, they buy, you know, what the what the what the donors aren't telling you when they say this, well, hey, this isn't illegal. What they're not telling you is they're making donations so there's no investigations into the legality of it, right? So take for Sequoia, for example. Sequoia was employing a member of the Chinese government uh, who was concealing this role for many years. They made misrepresentations to the media about his relationship and his association with the firm. There's a number of other allegations of his history of capital market fraud. What did the National Security Council do? They walked over and broke up the firm. They didn't launch an appropriate investigation. They did everything they could to cover things up. So for Sequoia and firms like this to say, well, this isn't illegal. Well, when they're hiring people from Washington, they're making donations and they're making sure there's no investigation into the legality. I find that disingenuous as a defense. To the extent that there is a need to remove old friends of China's from positions of leadership and power, whether they're in the political realm or whether they're on Wall Street, um, how would you recommend we go about doing that? And how imperative is it the need? Listen, the, the, the great thing about America is we don't need to change our laws, right? We just need to have people in office that have the courage and are willing to actually enforce them. And if they do enforce them, the market will clean this stuff up, right? It's gotten out of control because, you know, there are no bribery investigations into the top people in Washington and how they're making all sorts of money in China. There are no investigations into capital market frauds with Chinese companies and how U.S. entities might be actually enabling those, right? So what we need to do is we need to get in an administration that's responsible for enforcing our laws they'll actually enforce our laws related to China. And again, to the extent that that is not happening at the moment, uh, and it seems unlikely to happen in part because of this corrupting effect, uh, is there any other mechanism that can operate? For example, um, most of these people are making these investments with other people's money. In some cases, they're not fat cats, you know, and wealthy individuals, oligarchs, what have you. They're they're people with monies in pension funds and mutual funds and 401k plans and the like. Uh, it, Brian, what is your thought on whether uh, mobilizing such people to oppose what's being done with their money might help engineer the kind of, well, policy changes, yes, but also personnel changes that are required? I mean, 100%. The state attorney generals who have investments in these funds, they could step up and look at, you know, uh, are there violations of laws? I'd be happy to lay out, you know, these are the companies, these are where the violations are. So the state attorney generals could actually do that. Any member of Congress, 
I mean, no member of Congress, members of Congress, you know, I was on another show, I was encouraging like, hey, uh, Matt Gates, J.D. Vance, some of these guys, everybody's worried about the threat of TikTok. I know for a fact, and I have no question whatsoever about saying it, that the Biden administration has claims, substantial claims about the top insiders at TikTok about criminal allegations, and it is purposely and willfully not investigating those. Brian, we have to leave it at that. Thank you for the great work that you've been doing helping make these cases, and we definitely need them pursued properly by all of the authorities. Keep up the good work, my friend, and Godspeed. Thanks to all of you for joining us. I hope you'll do so again next time. Until then, go forth and multiply. Night after night, in cities across the country, black-garbed assailants clash with police in the streets, smash windows, and throw Molotov cocktails in an effort to destroy police stations, federal courthouses, and local businesses, all in the name of anti-fascism. Most Americans are now, sadly, all too aware of the movement known as Antifa. But where did they come from? What do they want? And how do we stop their campaign of violent mayhem? The Center for Security Policy Press is proud to present Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat, This new book looks at the history, ideology, organization, finances, and strategy of Antifa and provides an in-depth analysis for law enforcement officers, policymakers, and the general public. From street fighting tactics of the Black Bloc to fundraising by prominent left-wing foundations, Unmasking Antifa is the go-to guide to understand this elusive and dangerous threat. Get your copy of Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat at Amazon.com. We're back, and I'm very pleased to say we are joined by Ilan Berman. He is the vice president of a wonderful organization, the American Foreign Policy Council. He has been, for many years, a professor at the Missouri State uh, University Defense and Strategic Studies Center. He has been, in addition to all of that, the editor of the Journal of International Security Affairs. Um, I'm very pleased to say he is a very, very good friend and colleague of many years. Uh, Not to say an old friend, but a friend of many years. And it's always a delight to catch up with him. And I'm only sorry that we haven't done this much more frequently in the past uh, year or so, Ilan. And I think that's because we've both been running hard. But thank you for the work you do at AFPC and um, the opportunity to share what you were up to with our audience. It's a privilege. No, thanks, Frank. And and yes, it, it's, it's wonderful to see you. I uh, I chalk up the silence to the fact that we're both, uh, you know, there's a lot going on in the world and we're both uh, running a little ragged. It's a target-rich environment, Ilan. <laughs> I think uh, we can put it that way. And, and one of the biggest targets, unfortunately, that is now being not only missed, but uh, very um, malevolently handled by the Biden administration, I think it's fair to say, is the Islamic Republic of Iran. And this is one of the nations that you've spent a lot of your professional life focused on writing about, warning about for that matter. Uh, And I'm very interested in your thoughts, Ilan, on where we are at this moment um, in the aftermath of the October 7th attack that I think was clearly enabled by, if not actually, you know, run by the Iranians. And all that has flowed from it uh, at the hands of uh, its proxies and some of its own personnel. Um, Where do things stand as you see it? Well, there's a lot to unpack here, so stop me at any time. But but my sense is I I think we're looking at uh, three levels of crisis that the Iranian regime is trying to solve. And uh, the events of October 7th have really uh, rebounded to the regime's benefit. Um, so it, it's useful to to say upfront that uh, it's a little bit of a straw man. It's a little bit of a red herring to talk about 
you know, that whole discussion about whether or not Iran actually ordered the October 7th attacks, because we know, the State Department knows, the U.S. government knows, you know, multiple intelligence agencies around the world know that Iran is the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism, that Iran is deeply enmeshed in building up the capabilities of a whole host of radical groups, including Hamas. So it's almost immaterial whether or not Iran had foreknowledge of the, the horrific events of October 7th, um, whether Iran actually struck the match by giving the green light, because Iran struck the match by building the infrastructure that made those attacks possible. And uh, anything is sort of anything less than a recognition of that is, is frankly giving the regime a free pass. Um, unfortunately, you know, we're seeing quite a bit. And, that, and that's really the best case is that they just made it all possible. Uh, right. But I personally right. go to the extreme that no, 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 they were up to their eyeballs in it. No, uh, no. And, and I, well. I, te I tend to think uh, along the same lines uh, for sort of for the next reason. Right. Uh, the Iranian regime has three levels of crisis, as I said, that they're trying to solve. Right. Bef uh, on October 6th, in the in the weeks and months before uh, the Hamas campaign of terror, the Iranians were dealing with a local crisis because they were dealing with these persistent protests that were taking place inside Iran, um, right? The back of the envelope calculation is that Iran is a country of 87 and a half million people. Two thirds of the population wasn't around 45 years ago when Ruhollah Khomeini stepped off the airplane from exile in Tehran. Uh, all politics is local and the regime has this distinct failure to thrive. Per capita, Iranians are one third poorer than their counterparts in 1979, right? So this is not a regime that's doing well in uh, economic or political terms and the resentment is growing. Uh, and so you're seeing, you know, you've sort of- To, to say nothing, if I might just add, Elon, of the imposition of their Sharia supremacist version yeah. of Islam well, no, no. on exactly the right. population and, and, ruthlessly. And those two things I think intersect in a, in a way that's really damaging for the regime because uh, as we've seen in China, if you're uh, sort of comparatively prosperous, the people are willing to countenance an erosion of their sovereignty. But if you're being oppressive and dictatorial um, and you're not providing in economic terms, it, you know, uh, what you see is what you get on the Iranian street, right? That you sort of see this, you know, the Rubicon's been crossed, the Iranian people uh, sort of very clearly want something different. They, it's a different story. They may not know what they want other than for the regime to go. That, I mean, that's a different conversation. But so that's the first level of crisis, right? The sort of domestic legitimacy crisis. The second level of crisis is regional marginalization, because in the three years, in the preceding three years before October 7th, Iran had been profoundly sidelined in the geopolitics of the region um, because of the Abraham Accords that were midwifed by the Trump administration, because of, uh, you know, common understanding, evolving understanding in the region between Israel and the Arab states about the dangers posed by Iran, right? However you slice and dice the problem, the Iranians found themselves on the outskirts of regional politics. And so they were desperate. Can I just check the timing yeah. on this, Ilana? Sure. It, it seems to me what you said is 100% true of the Trump administration, but the previous two and a half years, right. three, uh, to the October 7th attack was the Biden watch. And those guys were busily trying to, you know, bring them back into the mainstream, were they not? No, no, no. So, so, so that's right. And so, so yes, you're, you're right. So longer than three years. But I would say that even as the Biden administration has tried to bring Iran back into the fold, back into sort of, you know, into some sort of uh, agreement over their nuclear program or some sort of diplomatic understanding, the Abraham, Abraham Accords until October 7th had taken on a life of its own, right? So the Israelis were coordinating with the Moroccans and the Bahrainis and the Emiratis, and even beyond with countries like Saudi Arabia and others, um, because facts are And the prospect of an actual agreement with the Saudis was- Right, no, absolutely. And the Iranians were, were desperate to interrupt this. And by the way, the, the Chinese brokered deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia in the spring of last year was an end run by the Iranian regime uh, around the Abraham Accords, because the Iranians understood some very well something that the Israelis that I talked to didn't really appreciate at the time, which is that you can be friends with Iran or you can be friends with Israel, but you can't be friends with both. Uh, and so that was the sort of the challenge that they were posing to the Saudis. Um, but uh, the aggregate result of this normalization wave, uh, despite the fact that the Biden administration has been trying very hard to sort of rehabilitate Iran and bring it back into the mainstream has been the fact that geopolitically, strategically, Iran has been marginalized and they've been trying to improve their position. 
right? So that's the second layer, the regional. The third layer is the international. And here we're really only talking about two countries, um, right? We, we know that uh, threats uh, are the sum total of capabilities and will. And in the context of Iran's nuclear program, the Iranian regime only worries about two countries. America, which has the capability to roll back, uh, perhaps even comprehensively, to roll back Iran's nuclear program, and Israel, which doesn't have the capability, but it has the will to do that. So the reason I lay all this out is because October 7th has really changed everything. And you fast forward four months and you realize that on every single level of, this, of these crises that the regime is experiencing, the regime is in a better place. Nobody's talking about Iranian human rights. Uh, the Abraham Accords have been short-circuited, at least temporarily. And Israel, the one country that they really worry about, you know, taking direct action to slow down their nuclear program is preoccupied. And, and you know, the Israelis publicly will talk about all options be, still being on the table. But practically speaking, they have a real problem in terms of uh, resource constraints, in terms of uh, potential multi-front war against Hezbollah in the north. Iran is, uh, the Iranian nuclear program, at least for now, is a bridge too far. Right. We're going to have to take a break before you have a chance to fully answer this question, but let me pose it to you. Um, you've mentioned several times, uh, both in the context of the region and uh, Iranian support for terrorism and the challenge that Israel is now facing, um, Hezbollah. It's hard to get your head around this, Ilan, but as you know, uh, the uh, Iranian regime has put something on the order of 150,000 missiles and rockets in southern Lebanon pointed at, well, every quarter of Israel. Uh, and with the possibility of now uh, actually delivering fire very precisely on all kinds of targets there. Uh, so as you look at this, uh, people have said, well, the Iranians um, view uh, Hezbollah is essentially their guarantee that the Israelis won't attack because uh, to do so would unleash uh, Hezbollah's missiles, rockets. Um, how do you see what's happening at the moment between Israel and Lebanon uh, and is Hezbollah in Lebanon um, and this larger problem that Israel clearly has with the, uh, the regime that's behind not only Hezbollah, but Hamas and the Houthis as well? Right. Well, there, there's really a, sort of a two-part answer. One is in the near term, in the immediate term, and the other is in the sort of the larger strategic sense. In the immediate term, my sense is that a northern front in the current uh, war that Israel's engaging in is, is inevitable. And it's ine inevitable for two reasons. One is strategically, uh, over the last several years, the Israelis have become wedded to this idea that they had full domain awareness, that they really knew what all the enemies, you know, whether it's Hezbollah in the north or Hamas in the Gaza Strip, were doing and the intelligence services could handle this. And October 7th proved that that was not the case. Um, and they also believed that they could essentially democratize the Palestinians, that they could, you know, uh, the way we, we for a long time thought that we could trade our way with, into making China a democracy, they thought that economic prosperity would have this trickle-down effect and the Palestinians would be radicalized. Neither of those things have proven out. The Israelis are now looking for a strategic concept, a new strategic concept. and. That strategic concept, by its essence, involves sort of forward defense, right? A uh, forward military posture, which requires Israel to go out and to pick a fight with Hezbollah in the north, because Hezbollah is well, right whether they're the picking the fight or the fight is coming to them, uh, it's definitely hotter and hotter by the day. Forgive me for interrupting, Ilan, as I fear no I would run out of time before you run out of answer. We'll pick up on the other side of a very short break with Elon Berman, the vice president of the American Foreign Policy Council and one of our country's real experts on Iran and so much more. Be right back. Stay tuned.
This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Yesterday, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Turner announced a, quote, serious national security threat, unquote, and called on President Biden to declassify all information about it. When I first heard this news, it seemed like an answer to prayer. After all, for months, our Committee on the Present Danger China has been warning that our borders are being invaded by large numbers of unaccompanied military-aged Chinese men. Customs and Border Patrol says 20,000 PRC nationals have entered since October 1st, and most of them appear to be People's Liberation Army personnel who surely constitute a serious national security threat. Evidently, Mr. Turner is instead preoccupied with an as yet undeployed Russian space-based nuclear weapon for destroying our satellites. That sounds like a problem, but what the nation needs to be addressing immediately is the present and potentially catastrophic danger posed by China's ongoing literal invasion of America. This is Frank Gaffney. Welcome back. We're visiting with Elon Berman, a longtime friend as well as valued colleague at the American Foreign Policy Council, the author of most recently Challenging Moscow's Message. We're going to talk with him about that in more in a few moments. But before we do, Elon, I did want you to finish your thoughts sure. on the challenge that Israel is facing from perhaps the most dangerous of Iran's proxies, Hezbollah. And then we'll talk a bit about uh, the danger from Iran itself. Right. Well, no, and, and as I said before the break, um, the uh, the immediate near-term problem that Israel has is twofold. One is strategic, right? The sort of the, the collapse of the old Israeli uh, strategic concept that they had domain awareness, that they... Um, that they really understood sort of how the threats were metastasizing and this movement towards forward defense, which is really propelling Israel, um, I think justifiably, into conflict with Hezbollah. Um, the other is practical because uh, we know very well that the uh, events of October 7th uh, created this mass dislocation of 200,000, 250,000 Israelis that have migrated from the south of Israel um, from what, what's called, what the Israelis call the Gaza envelope up north to places like uh, Tel Aviv. They've been displaced, their communities have been shattered, and this is still ongoing. Um, what we know, have spent less time looking at is that you've had a smaller but corresponding exodus out of Israel's north. Um, you have about uh, 80,000 to 100,000 Israelis that have been displaced from cities like Kiryat Shmona that they have moved down. And the reason they've done that is they've done that preemptively. They've either been moved by the Israeli government uh, or they've moved themselves because they know that Hezbollah, when you rack and stack the threats, Hezbollah is actually much more dangerous than Hamas is. And so they don't want a repeat performance of October 7th uh, to take place in their communities, right? It's very prudent. Um, but the situation is this sort of, uh, at least partially, uh, a symptom of Israeli neglect. And I, what I mean by this is the last time Israel went to war with Hezbollah was in 2006. That conflict ended as a result of a UN Security Council resolution, Resolution 1701 which stipulated that there needs to be a demilitarized zone south of the Latani River in Lebanon, all the way to the joint border between Lebanon and Israel. Um, and that that uh, sort of that would be the buffer zone that would ensure security for Israel's northern communities. Israel has, uh, over intervening years, allowed, countenanced the slow creep downward of Hezbollah to the point where if you go up to uh, the Israeli-Lebanese border, as I was in, um, in April, you will see outposts of Hezbollah right across the border looking into Israel. And so now the Israelis, for practical purposes, have to go in and push Hezbollah back. The Israelis obviously hope that this is done sequentially. They don't have to do this while they're fighting Hamas. Um, but it's, it's a necessity because they need the northern third of the country to start functioning again. And the Israelis will not go back to their homes unless they're secure. And uh, Ilan, on this point, um... Israel's uh, capacity to engage in that kind of fight, especially with 
presumably on hair trigger alert, uh, this immense amount of ordinance on the other side of the border um, is being impacted, I think it's fair to say, by the slow constriction by the United States of the resupply of uh, armaments to Israel. I'm, I'm being told that, uh, I'm sure you're hearing this too, that uh, some of the military operations in Gaza are being impacted by the need to husband uh, aerial uh, ordinance, for example. Um, and that's affecting what's happening on the ground as well, including loss well, of and it's affecting your lives. planning for the North because, you know, as they're expending ordinance, as the resupply becomes, uh, you know, caught up in the vagaries of Washington politics, uh, they know that they are going to need uh, uh, to have a northern front. They don't know when, but they need to have the equipment. As, as, as one Israeli uh, pu- uh, Israeli official put it to me not too long ago, do they expect us to fight in the north with swords? Probably not. So if that's the case, then you know American support and American resupply becomes really, really essential. And, and so Israeli officials are watching what's happening on Capitol Hill with a tremendous amount of trepidation because you know we're, we're sort of caught up in this political cycle where support for allies becomes uh, increasingly a hostage of you know partisan deliberations. Right, and and I, I assume you share that trepidation as well. I certainly do. And I fear that uh, this is not likely to um, resolve itself uh, soon and and speaks to this larger and really insidious um, plan, I guess one would call it, that uh, the Obama administration in its second of, I call it three iterations, uh, cooked up uh, a, a memorandum of understanding that essentially put Israel into this kind of dependency on the United States. I gather the Israelis are trying frantically to try to rebuild trying to break their out own of the box capabilities. Trying to yeah. But but that's I, that's not likely to happen in time to deal with this kind no, of contingency and, in a Hezbollah. And think. the Israelis are also dealing with really adverse battlefield math. And what I mean by this is, right, uh, the back of the envelope calculations is that Hezbollah has a mass somewhere between 120,000 and 150,000 short range rockets and missiles, most of them of Iranian origin, um, uh, in multiple stockpiles, multiple warehouses in southern Lebanon. Now, Israel has a tunnels underground as well. Yeah, absolutely. And Israel has an enormously effective missile defense system called the Iron Dome. Iron Dome has a 90% effectiveness rate. But what's 90% of 150,000? That's still an awful lot of rockets that would target and would put at risk Israeli population centers. And so and if they actually had enough Iron Dome interceptors to no, no, cor- take out the 90 percent, 10 percent is the, a big number. Yeah, yeah. And that's the and that's the second part, uh, which is that all the militants, right, not just Hezbollah, but also Hamas, and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, they figured out that they could they may not be able to compete with Israel in a force on force competition, but they could create an economic war of attrition because those rockets are very cheap. They're between $30,000 and $50,000 to build to amass because they're not so, so worried about uh, sort of precision and you know, uh, sort of multiple reentry vehicles and sort of all that, right? Like all the stuff that we worry about with our ballistic missiles and, and our missile arsenal. Um, but the Iron Dome interceptors are an order of magnitude uh, more expensive um, in terms of firing. So Hezbollah and Hamas both have figured out long ago that what they can do is they can lob a bunch of rockets, assuming one uh, some will get through. But even if they don't, they will create a situation where Israel depletes its financial stores in order to keep its Iron Dome stocked and has to go begging for assistance, for emergency assistance from allies like the United States. Yeah, well, it's specifically the United States. Elon, we're going to take another short break. We'll be right back and we're going to talk a bit more about the, the mothership of all of this evil facing Israel and us. And that would be the uh, Iranian regime in Tehran. Elon Berman's in the house from the American Foreign Policy Council. We'll be right back with more. Stay tuned. Welcome back. We're visiting with Elon Berman. I've got so many things I want to talk to him about, (laughs) China and Russia and uh, Ukraine and more. 
but we're probably going to have to have him back for another day because we're going to drill down a little bit further on this Middle East uh, crisis and what it means, not just for our friends in the Jewish state of Israel, but also, I believe, for us and Western civilization more generally. You wanted to make one final um, uh, sort of connecting of the dot uh, point about Hezbollah. Yeah, if it's okay, because because I think it's necessary to, uh, to sort of to understand how we respond to Iran or how we're not responding to Iran, uh, such as it is, uh, you have to understand where Hezbollah nests in Iranian strategy. So uh, the formative military event for Iran uh, in, because remember this regime, it just just passed its 45th anniversary. It's very new uh, in global terms. The formative uh, strategic event was the brutal and ultimately um, uh, enormously challenging for Iran uh, war, eight year war, against neighboring Iraq. And the uh, Iranians uh, were systematically sort of dismantled. The Iranian military was dismantled. Iranian capabilities were dismantled. And it bred in Iran this uh, desire, this penchant for asymmetric warfare. And that's where Hezbollah comes in, because those rockets that we just talked about, uh, that that stockpile of, uh, of uh, missiles and precision-guided munitions that they can use to hold Israel at risk is the insurance policy that the regime has, because the regime is worried that Israel will strike out directly, Israel will strike the Iranian nuclear program. And if a retaliation comes, and it's very likely to come, it won't come from Iran itself. It'll come from Israel's north, from Lebanon. And so what they're doing is they're essentially creating preemptive blackmail. Mm -hmm. Okay. This very helpfully, I think, fleshes out what we were talking about before the break. Now let's turn to the mothership itself. Um, the U.S. government has, as we've been discussing, uh, had it as a fixation of the successive Obama-Biden administrations, now 3.0, that we must um, raise up the Iranian regime. We must really reorient our policies towards having it have a kind of hegemonic role in that region, at least. Uh, and as a result, um, we're going to try to negotiate deals with them. We're going to give them money. We're going to turn a blind eye to even attacks by the regime's own, you know, Iranian Republican Revolutionary Guard Corps, I guess, IRGC, against American personnel, in some cases murderously so. Uh, where does this go? What are the options for Israel? What are the stakes for us, Ilan? So, so this doesn't go in a good direction. And I think we're, we're seeing this. Um, what Iran has, based precisely upon what I just explained, right, this uh, Iranian pension for asymmetry has been, they've spent the last uh, three decades building up a very comprehensive and very robust and powerful network of proxies that they use to influence politics around the region. Uh, it's not just Hezbollah. It's Hamas in the Palestinian territories, it's the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, it's Shiite militias in Iraq, it's the Houthi rebels in Yemen. And now, uh, in against the backdrop of uh, Israel's war against Hamas in Gaza, what you're seeing is an activation of this network with global effects. What the Houthis are doing in terms of... Uh, oh, there's Dan. Um, uh, in, in, what the Houthis are doing in terms of... Uh, a targeting of commercial of uh, international commerce through the Red Sea through the through the Bab al Mandab is having a marginal effect. It's driving global uh, global commodity prices higher. It's also highlighting the the flimsiness of U.S. deterrence posture. Um, what you have now is you have a situation where, in its pursuit of some sort of deal with um, the Iranian regime. The Biden administration has systematically refused to respond to Iranian provocations, right? Hundreds of attacks against uh, deployed U.S. soldiers in places like Iraq. And as a result, uh, American deterrence has eroded catastrophically. And now the Biden administration has a has a challenge. Uh, they have to rebuild deterrence. And this is, for, as, as I see it, this is a three-step process. It, it can either be targeting the proxies like the Houthis, targeting the connective tissue, the IRGC, right, the elements of the regime that are uh, interfacing with the proxies, or targeting the regime itself. But truly resetting deterrence, uh, it may be that we have to strike out at Iran directly and hold at risk things that the regime really cares about. And I'm not at all confident the Biden administration is prepared to do that. 
Yeah, uh, all the evidence to the contrary, uh, I think. Uh, let me ask you uh, for your informed assessment of where uh, things stand now with respect to the ability of the Iranian regime to engage in this kind of aggressive behavior, confident that it has deterred the United States, not not simply got a uh, an administration that is by virtue of its policy inclined to enable uh, the regime, but that the bomb is now, if not actually in hand in some numbers, uh, certainly imminently so, and uh, checkmating the United right. States at this point. So, and maybe Israel I, as well, for that matter. No, no, I, I think that's right. And I, I want uh, the audience to sort of to understand that what we're talking about is we're talking about a time horizon, right? The situation uh, we're in now in which Iran is rapidly approaching the nuclear threshold, the Iranian nuclear program is increasingly mature, we see an unbridled Iran in the region. The optimal situation that we have, and it's not so optimal, is what we have right now, where Iran doesn't have the bomb, um, but Iran is not deterred. The closer Iran gets to the nuclear threshold, the more it amplifies all of this destabilizing activity uh, because it knows, right, the history has shown us that um, uh, the United States does not go to war with nuclear powers, right, and it, or at least it does not go to war directly. And so the nuclear program is an insurance policy for regime longevity, but it's also an empowering element that will allow Iran to activate more parts of its proxy network with impunity. Because after all, if you're sitting in Tehran and you're looking at this scenario, uh, the current situation where they don't yet have the bomb, America's already sufficiently deterred. Imagine how much better the region will be once they become a nuclear possessor. Yeah. B for the Iranian regime and its ambitions, uh, I think is what you're saying. Elon, this is a, a chilling place at which to leave this conversation, but it is one where I think you've really laid the table for uh, not only our improved understanding of what is happening there, but also I hope for our next visit with you in the very near future, if you'll accommodate us again soon. Absolutely. In the meantime, thank you again for the work that you thank do you. at the American Foreign Policy Council. Uh, thank you for joining us from time to time. And uh, I know you'll keep up uh, both and we look forward to our visit. Uh, we look forward to visiting with the rest of you again next time. Until then, go forth and multiply. <laughs>